So in 2017, it was the word of the year. In 2019, a Pew Research study found that Americans rated it, that word of the year, as a larger problem than racism, climate change, or terrorism. And according to an article from The Telegraph, a newspaper in London, it's one of the greatest threats to democracy, free debate, and the Western order. Does anybody want to take a guess at what I'm talking about today? What? Fake news. I wish I had a prize to give you. (laughs) Excellent. That's exactly right. So what is fake news? It's one of those words that until just a few years ago wasn't in our everyday vocabulary, but now it's everywhere, right? Everybody is using that. Fake news, technically speaking, is the false, often sensational information disseminated under the guise of real, actual news reported for the purposes of generating revenue or promoting or discrediting a public figure, a political movement, a company, or etc. In fact, just a few years ago, the term would have been fairly meaningless. But now it's become part of our everyday vocabulary, our everyday consciousness. Now, fake news as a as, a, a, as an idea, as a thing, is not a recent phenomenon. In fact, if you are a student of history, you'll find examples going all the way back to antiquity into the modern era. So what's changed in the last few years? Why is it such a big problem? Well, for starters, it used to be really expensive and difficult to get information published. It used to be that not anybody could publish information. It took years for newspapers and journalists to build up trust with people. But now in our digital age, with the rise of social media, not only can anyone publish information in just a few short hours with just a few clicks, it can be shared at exponential rates. And sure, all of the barriers to creating fake news have been removed, and now human depravity is having a field day. Sabrina Tavernese, writing for the New York Times, captures the problem well. She says this, fake news and the proliferation of raw opinion that passes for news is creating confusion, punching holes in what is true, causing a kind of funhouse effect that leaves the reader doubting everything, including real news. Anybody like me feel that way? You are just confused about what's actually true and false. You hear a story and you're just skeptical about its veracity. You doubt nearly every single thing you read. And that's on both sides of the political aisle. It's on both sides of the news outlets. And here's why that's problematic. Because news at its most basic level is supposed to be a report of what's actually happened or what's currently happening News is not primarily advice or commentary. It may lead to advice. It may come along with some commentary and an appropriate response. But fundamentally, news is a report about what's happened. It's a matter of facts and history. Because we live in a world of fake news and politically charged opinions that masquerade as news, it can be very confusing to try to parse out what is subjective opinion And what's objective fact? But at the end of the day, we have to sift through all the noise and figure out what's actually news and then respond 
accordingly. Our passage today, John, the evangelist, accounts the resurrection of Jesus, and he is reporting this as news. We often think when we come to the Bible that what we're getting is mostly advice or commentary about how to live, but in fact, it's the opposite. Most of what we are given and and reading in the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, is news about an event that's happened. It is purporting it as matter-of-fact history. It's news. The gospel is not an op-ed piece with suggestions for how to live. The gospel is news, not advice about something that's happened. And our job is to make a decision. Is this fake news? Is this the greatest hoax and the most malignant deception of all time? Or is the resurrection of Jesus the greatest news that's ever been reported about how God in Christ has defeated sin and death to give us life and hope and place and meaning? That is the question of John chapter 20. And as we look at John chapter 20 this morning, we're going to see three things about the resurrection. The first thing we're going to see, if you're taking notes, these are our headings today. The first thing we see about the resurrection is that it is historical. The resurrection is a matter of history. Everything about the way this is reported lends itself to credible news reporting. Second, we're going to see this, that the resurrection is transformational. This news is not irrelevant to you. It's not um, uh, static. It will change your life. And number three, we'll see that the resurrection is missional. This kind of news is not the news you keep to yourself. It's not the kind of news that you hear and go, oh, that's great. This is the kind of news that you share. So we'll see that the resurrection is historical, it's transformational, and it's also missional. Now look with me, let's start with the first point, the resurrection is historical. Now before I get into the text, we've covered a lot of chapters in John. I just want to acknowledge, I want to give us a little bit of context, and I want to acknowledge at the start that resurrection is a hard pill to swallow. I understand that because the claim it's making is that a man who was crucified on a Roman cross who was deader than dead, became undead. And that just doesn't happen, right? When, when somebody dies, they're dead. We don't see those people coming back. And so resurrection is a hard pill to swallow. It, you could think of it like this. It's the miracle of miracles. It's the sign of all the signs. If you remember throughout John, we looked at seven signs. The way John has organized his material, he has seven things that he calls big signs that point to Jesus. There was the water uh, being turned into wine of John chapter two. There was the cleansing of the temple where Jesus had the, the sign of authority. There was the healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter four. There was the healing of the lame man in John chapter five. There was the feeding the multitude and walking on water in John chapter 6. There was the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9. And then there was the raising of Lazarus in John 11. And John was saying these are signs that point to the authority, the power of Jesus Christ. But John gives us a bonus sign. It's very Jewish of him. There's, a, there's an eighth sign, a perfection sign. It's the sign of all signs. It's, it's the resurrection. 
And for my Lord of the Rings friends, it's the sign to rule them all. Okay, there you go. It's pointing to the reality that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Son of God who has come to save us from death, decay, and destruction of of sin. And because it's such an unbelievable reality that someone could defeat death and therefore rise again, it would seem that the burden of proof is on the gospel writers to convince us that this really happened, right? If this is something so unbelievable, something that, that never happens, not just rarely happens, but never happens, it would seem that the burden of proof is on Christians, on believers, on the evangelists to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that the resurrection really happened. But I think the way this is written, if you look at history the evidence you'll find is remarkable. I think the evidence is so remarkable, in fact, that it shifts that burden of proof. I think the evangelists have it. They have adequately provided the, an overwhelming abundance of, uh, of burden that it has now shifted that burden over to the non-believer. I'm gonna point out three things in John chapter 20 that I think show that the burden of proof has shifted from the believer to the skeptic. In other words, my hope after we're done with this first point is that to, to, to disbelieve in the historicity of the resurrection means that you, if you're the disbeliever or the skeptic, will have to come up with a better, more credible, different explanation for what happened at the tomb 2,000 years ago. All right, big claim. Let's jump into verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now let's stop right there. Here's our first point that I believe shifts the burden of proof. Number one, women are the first to find the empty tomb. Number one, women are the first to find the empty tomb. Now that may not seem like a big deal in our culture today. At first glance, it, it doesn't, right? But it is a massive deal, huge. We shouldn't be able to read verse one and not pause. In this culture, did you know, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court. It wasn't. If a crime happened and it was only women who saw it, it was like nobody saw it. There's There's no credible witnesses to be found. One ancient writer named Celsus who lived about 80 years after Jesus ridiculed Christianity. He was prolific in his writing against Christianity. And he said, guys, it is so dumb that Christians believe this. Here's why. The the basis for their whole belief rested on little more than the confused and contradictory testimony of frightened women. Now, this guy would not get far in our culture Our women at this church would eat him alive. But this is the world that John is writing in. The other gospels, if you read them, make it clear that Mary is accompanied by other women. John, in his gospel, chooses to highlight Mary Magdalene. And and here's what's also important about it being Mary. Did you know John chapter 8 verse 2 tells us that seven demons had come out of Mary Magdalene. Like one would discredit her. Two, oh my goodness, seven. Seven demons came out of her. So what John is telling you is he's saying, listen, my primary witness, my key star witness in this whole thing is not only a woman, 
but a formerly demon-possessed woman who had seven demons. Now, let me ask you something. If you were making this up and you wanted to do everything as you were writing this to go, I, I, I want to make sure that people believe me, there's no chance you choose Mary as the first and primary witness to the gospel. In fact, she may be the very least likely person anyone would have had to be the first witness of the empty tomb. If the other gospel writers, if John, they were making this up, they would never have a group of women with Mary Magdalene as their spokesperson for the first eyewitness of the gospel, which means the only reason John would write it this way is because this is how it all went down. So the first burden-shifting point that shows the historicity of this account is that women are the first to find the empty tomb. Here's the second one. No one expected resurrection. Not one person. Look with me at verse two. So she ran, Mary, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I just have to say, every time I read that, I laugh that John, who's the other disciple, just like kind of throws it in there. Peter, on that foot race to the tomb, I beat you. He says it twice. I love that. So Mary sees the tomb roll, the, the stone rolled away, right? A big, heavy uh, uh, stone. It would have been at an incline, easy to roll down, hard to roll up. And she runs back to the disciples to tell Peter and John that they, whoever they are, have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where he is. Think about it. Mary's first reaction isn't good news. Jesus is risen. That explains why he's not there. Even though Jesus repeatedly told his disciples, including the women, I am going to die and rise again. He says it over and over and over again, which you would think would create an expectation that on the third day when they go to find him, that he won't be there. You would think that's why Mary was going, right? Mary was going to the tomb because she remembered Jesus said he was gonna rise again. So I'm gonna go there to see him. But that is not why she goes there. She's carrying burial spices. If you believe someone has risen from the dead, you don't need burial spices, do you? You need burial spices for what? Dead people, if you expect to find a live human being, you don't bring burial spices. If I come to your house with formaldehyde, that's just weird. If I'm coming over for dinner and I've got all these burial spices and things, you're going, what are you doing? Right? She was coming to meet a dead body. That's why she was there. She was coming to make sure Joseph and Nicodemus had given Jesus a proper burial. She's not coming to meet Jesus. She's coming to meet a dead body. And so when he's not there, her first assumption is he's dead, but someone, perhaps grave robbers, Jewish authorities, or Roman leaders have taken his body. So what does she do? She goes to the leaders in charge of the disciples. She goes to Peter and John, and she tells them he's gone. Someone has taken them. Now, what do they do? Right? Right? 
These are the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. These, these are like the guys, the guys among guys, the disciples of the disciples, his inner group, the ones who saw him in the transfiguration, the ones who he habitually pulled aside and had these side conversations. They were his inner circle. She goes to them and tells them that he's gone. And do they tell Mary, listen, don't worry, all is well. Don't you remember, Mary, he told us it would be like this. Don't you remember, Mary, that the greatest miracle in the history of miracles has just happened? No. What do they do? They hightail it out of there to go see what's happened. Even though Jesus has told them multiple times that he would be crucified and rise again. However, they don't believe. They don't believe. How do we know that? John tells us. He says, for as yet they, Peter and John, did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. John says, listen, we didn't believe him. We didn't believe that he was going to suffer and rise from the dead. So our first thought was someone's taken the body. Not he rose again and has walked out of the grave. And here's why I point this out. We are so prideful in our modern era. We think ancient people are gullible, stupid people but they're not. They knew what death was. They knew that dead people don't become undead. In fact, I would argue they know more about death than we do. They were around it all of the time. They lost people. Their life expectancy was so much shorter than ours. Children died all the time. Women died giving birth all the time. Death surrounded them. They weren't gullible. They knew what happens? They had buried more people in their lifetime than you and I have. They knew what it was for someone to be dead. And they knew dead people don't become undead. I point this out because resurrection was just as inconceivable to them as it is to us today. This is the world they lived in. The Greek playwright, Aeschylus, captures what the Greeks, so this would be like the Greek, the Greco-Roman mind frame in terms of resurrection. Here's what he wrote. Once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. So the people who put Christ to death on the cross, they had no, con- they, they knew what resurrection was. They just said, that doesn't happen. Here's what happens. You die, the blood soak, the, the dust soaks up your blood, and that's it. And for the Jews at that time, some outright rejected resurrection. And for those small group who did believe in resurrection, they believed it was a resurrection of all believers that happened at the end of time. It was a corporate end of time resurrection. But the concept of an individual, personal resurrection that happened now was as inconceivable. So what I'm telling you is, whether you were Jewish or Greek, whether you were a Pharisee or Sadducee, Nobody was expecting a resurrection to happen now, let alone the resurrection of the Messiah. And here's why that matters. No one, no one, not even his inner circle, expected Jesus to rise again. And they didn't expect anyone else to believe them either. But they wrote what they saw because they had seen the unexpected. They had to write what they saw because they said, no, no matter how far-fetched this sounds, no matter how far-fetched it may be, no matter how many people will call us crazy, this is what we saw. 
The second burden-shifting evidence is that no one expected resurrection. Number three, the details coincide with credible firsthand eyewitness testimony. Look at the details. Let me start reading in verse five. And stooping to look in, this is John. Remember, he got there first. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. He's much more reserved. Then Peter, you love him, he's brash. He came following him and went into the tomb. No waiting. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, that's John, don't forget, I reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they had not understood the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then disciples went back to their home. Did you notice how detailed the details are? They're not generalized. Back in verse four, John makes sure to mention that as they ran to the tomb, John got there first. Do you ever think about how insignificant it is who got there first? It doesn't really matter. But it's recorded, why? Because that's how it happened. In fact, if you study genuine eyewitness accounts, you'll learn that when people see something, they give both significant and insignificant details. So when something happens and police are going, hey, tell us what happened, the people just spill out information and they let everyone else figure out what was significant, what was relevant, what was not. They just see, they just tell it like it is. So some of those details become uh, incredibly significant for figuring out you know, what really happened and some of them end up being immaterial, insignificant. But that's what you have with genuine eyewitness testimony, a conflation of significant and insignificant details. But when you're lying, when you're making up a story, these kinds of details are often left out. You're trying to just think through clearly the the, the significant things that led up. And as you're creating a story, those insignificant details don't come up. Then John tells us he was the one who hung back and looked in. Peter gets there, and in true Peter form, he just brashly walks in. And then they describe the burial linen lying there in an orderly manner, which would not fit the theory that someone stole the body. Think about it. If you're going in there to steal the body, you probably wouldn't even unwrap it. Why? Because it's gross. You don't want to touch the dead body. It's been in there for three days. It's starting to smell. It's starting to decay. You keep that thing wrapped up. But if you did unwrap it, are you going to take the time to fold everything neatly and orderly? No, you're getting out of there. So if you're stealing the body, why unwrap the body? Why would you take the time to fold and neatly order everything? The only explanation that makes sense is that the resurrected Jesus, as he came to, took off his burial linen because he didn't need them anymore, and he folded them up neatly. Now, I am just scratching the surface of a detailed analysis of all these details. People have written entire books to draw out every subtlety about the historicity of the gospel resurrection. So what other theories have people proposed? Some have suggested that the disciples, you know, with all the grief and the wake of seeing their 
beloved Jesus die suffered long-term mass hallucinations. The problem with this theory is that the disciples claim to have seen Jesus over the course of 40 days and that he appeared to hundreds of people. In fact, the New Testament lists a bunch of their names. This isn't like just generalizations like, hey, he appeared to a lot of people who, you know, some people. Their names are recorded. Paul said, you can go talk to him. You can go talk to him. They're still alive. If you want to see someone, talk to someone who saw the resurrected Jesus, Paul lists them out. He's like, hey, they live in Corinth. You can go talk to them right now. This theory simply doesn't hold water. Some people have suggested that Jesus survived his crucifixion. Now, here's the problem with that. Rome as a machine knew how to kill people. And crucifixion does not have a survival rate. It is 100% effective. Not to mention, can you imagine a mostly dead, beat up, bleeding out Jesus who somehow is able to roll away the stone, walking up to the disciples and being like, I defeated death. They would go, no, you look, you, you look death. You look like you're about to die, right? You think that guy would have sparked a movement? No, they would have tried to get him to a first century hospital. The claim was not that Jesus defeated crucifixion and had been merely resuscitated. Did you know they have a word for that? Just like we in English have a word for resuscitation, they had a word for that, but that's not the word they used. They used the word anastasis, which means resurrected, which means you were dead and then you weren't. The claim was he defeated death and was resurrected. They would not have confused those two realities. Some people have suggested that the early disciples created fake news or some masterminded hoax. If that were the case, all that the leaders would have had to do is produce the body to, to quelch it and to, and to show it all to be a scam. Let's look at motive. If it, if it was a hoax, if it was fake news, generally you're trying to get something out of it, right? You have a, a motive. What would their motive have been? None of them got rich off the resurrection. Every single one of these men died a gruesome, torturous death for their belief. Every single one of them. People who create and perpetuate fake news do so for selfish gain. But the disciples lost everything that the world holds dear to the point of death simply to do what? Proclaim what they saw. All they had to do was recant. All they had to do in the face of torture and pressure from the Roman Empire is say, you're right. I made it all up. Here's where we hid the body. And did you know, not a single one ever recanted. Chuck Colson helps us understand. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison. And they would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate, on the other hand, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. 
Friends, from a historical perspective, you have to give an explanation for what happened 2,000 years ago. Nobody denies that Jesus was a, a real, live human being. Nobody denies that he was crucified on a Roman cross. It's not just the Christian Bible that writes about that. Roman and Jewish historians of that time write about Jesus being crucified. So what's left for us is to decide, then what happened? You have to give an explanation for how a small group of nobodies grew exponentially in just a few short weeks to number in the thousands, who then in 300 years came to number 34 million over half of the Roman Empire, 300 years later, confessed belief in Christ despite widespread state-sanctioned persecution. So the burden of proof is on you, if you disbelieve, to come up with something that happened. You have to come up with then how did this unfold? Something changed history. And it had to be something so powerful to turn these fearful men and women into bold and courageous martyrs for Christ. You have to give an explanation of how a bunch of nobodies, people we would never have known about, how they became these bold witnesses willing to stake everything on him for the sake simply to tell the world, Jesus died, but now he's alive. Here's how Greg Gilbert explains it in his book, Who is Jesus? The resurrection is the hinge on which all of Christianity turns. It's the foundation on which everything else rests. It's the capstone that holds everything else about Christianity together, which means crucially that when Christians assert that Jesus rose from the dead, they are making a historical claim, not a religious one. Please, if you don't leave with anything, leave with that. When we say Jesus rose again, we are primarily first making a claim of history. Like when we say uh, Napoleon Bonaparte was a real historical figure who was defeated at Waterloo, we are making the exact same kind of statement. Yet, of course, there are religious implications to that claim, if you want to call them that, but none of them is in the least valid if Jesus didn't really, truly, historically come back to life from the dead. Given the historical evidence and the weakness of alternative theories, it's simply intellectually dishonest to read these accounts and just dismiss them as made-up myths. Christians believe that the actual historical resurrection of Jesus is the only explanation that makes sense of what happened after the death of Christ. I know that was a long point, but it's crucial that we understand that so that the other ones make sense. The first thing we see in John 20 is that the resurrection is historical. Now quickly, we'll get the last two. Second, we see that the resurrection is transformational. Look at me at verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, so if you've carried him away, tell me where they've laid him and I will take him away. 
And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she's turned to him in Aramaic and said, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So when Mary discovers that Jesus isn't in the tomb, she's experiencing sorrow upon sorrow, right? She's grieving the betrayal that led to his death. She's grieving the events that led to his trial and execution. And now it's this further heaping of grief as she sees the degradation and further humiliation of his body being stolen. I've often wondered if maybe she was even fearful in that moment that perhaps the demons that left her might return. While Jesus was with her, the demons are gone and now she's wondering, Jesus is gone, what does that mean for me? But then Mary hears Jesus speak her name and everything changes. Do you see that on the, on the turn of her name? The good shepherd calls her name and as one of her, his sheep, she responds. In an instant, her sorrow is turned to joy and she reaches out to embrace Jesus. And Jesus reminds her, I'm not staying long. I will be departing soon to go back to the Father. Like he said in John 13, to prepare a place for his disciples, to send the Spirit, another helper who will guide them into truth, to give them power to be witnesses in all the earth. Do you hear in his words to her that he's accomplished the work of reconciliation? Verse 17, he said, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God, that gap between the relationship I have with the Father and the one that you have with the Father has now been bridged by the cross. God is not only the Father of Christ, he's now the Father to all who believe. And she hears the words of Christ and she runs to tell the good news to the disciples. You see, Jesus met her in her sadness and in her fear and by the power of the cross and the hope of resurrection, Mary is transformed in an instant. But she's not the only person in John 20 who experiences transformation. Look with me at verses 24 and 28 to see the transformation of Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, no problem for Jesus, he came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Thomas, the doubter as he's often called, is the rational one of the group. I love Thomas. Though he's a disciple, he represents what most people during that time believed about the gospel. Thomas was not the gullible one of the group. He's not convinced by the testimony of the women. He's not moved even by the testimony of his friends. He's saying, I need empirical evidence. I need evidence more than what you've shown me to overcome what I know to be true, that dead people stay dead. But then what happens? The resurrected Jesus shows up and says what? 
Investigate me. Thomas, you need evidence? Look. Look for yourself and believe. And Thomas sees Jesus, and in a powerful moment of transformation, he says, my Lord and my God. Now, I think John gives us these two scenes of Mary and of Thomas to make a powerful point today uh, to us today. Though we don't have or have the opportunity to have that same literal face-to-face encounter with Jesus like Mary and Thomas did, but by faith and through the Spirit, we can still experience the life-transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus is still in the business of transforming broken, sorrowful people as we discover that Jesus is alive? As you come to faith to believe that Jesus didn't stay dead, that the grave couldn't hold him, that he walked out on Easter morning, that Jesus is alive, did you know that when you put your faith and hope in that, that same transforming power is made available to you today? And Jesus extends that invitation to us to be reconciled to God. Did you know if you're a doubter in this room, if you'd say, man, I'm, I'm kind of a skeptic, did you know that Jesus is still in the business of holding out his arms and saying, investigate me. Don't stand back. Come, investigate, see for yourself and believe. This transforming power of the resurrection is precisely Paul's point in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and may that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is telling us, this is Paul living after the resurrection, telling his church that there is resurrection power in Christ. Listen to how Pastor Tim Keller explains. When he, Paul, says, I want to know the power of his resurrection, it means I want to be just like him. He says, look at the deadness in your life. Look at the anger. How is that going to be turned into forgiveness? Look at the insecurity. How is that going to be turned into confidence? Look at the self-centeredness. How is that going to be turned into compassion and generosity? How? The answer is the dead stuff gets taken over by the Spirit of God. The minute you decide to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And it's the power of the resurrection, the same thing that raised Jesus from the dead. Listen, look at me right here. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same transformational power that is yours in Christ. Mary and Thomas are pictures of this principle that Jesus meets us where we are. And as we come to see him and to know him and to love him and follow him, our lives are transformed as well. As people, as you become transformed and people who knew you way back when, they start to see the change in your life, they're gonna ask, how have you changed? People who knew me as a younger man would say, Clint, I I see that you're not as angry as you used to be. You're not as easily frustrated as you used to be. The wounds from your past don't seem to be holding you up like they used to. And all I can tell them is, thanks be to God, by the power of the resurrection, he is changing me. 
And that same power is available to you. Not only is the resurrection a matter of historical fact, it has life-changing power. Finally, number three, the resurrection is missional. Verse 20, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. After Jesus appeared to Mary and before he appeared to uh, Thomas, he came to the disciples. Bible tells us their hearts were glad when they saw him. Jesus tells them, peace, shalom be with you. And then he says, as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. Did you know in John's gospel, the, the reality of the Father sending the Son appears constantly. In fact, it appears 41 times. All, at least twice a chapter, Jesus is saying, Did you, don't forget, the Father has sent me. And now he's saying, just in the same way that the Father sent me with a clear mission, I am sending you. He prayed for this for them in John 17. He said, Father, don't take them out of the world, but keep them in the world as we send them on mission. And now he's commissioning his disciples to go into the world and make disciples. And as believers, if you put your faith in Christ, as you've been invited into that triune fellowship of God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you and I are invited into this mission. The Father sent the Son, and now the Son is sending the disciples to continue the mission. Not only does he send them, but he equips them by the power of the Spirit. Did you hear? He said as he's commissioning them, he breathes on them and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. He already promised to send the Holy Spirit in John chapter uh, 14 and 16 as he told them about this other helper. Now he breathes on them symbolizing their reception of the Holy Spirit. Now we'll see the Spirit come in full power in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, where it's a public outpouring of the Spirit. But here in this room, Jesus gives his his apostles the Holy Spirit in a personal and intimate way as they are carrying the torch. It will be their responsibility to start this disciple-making movement and Jesus gives them this Holy, the Holy Spirit in a personal and intimate way. It reminds me of Genesis chapter two, where God breathes life into Adam. Jesus is breathing life into his mission, giving them power as he commissions them for this apostolic ministry. And with this commission, with this equipping power of the Spirit, he also gives them authority. He tells them, you'll have the authority to forgive sins and to withhold that forgiveness, depending on how people respond to the message of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that forgiveness comes from them, but it's their authority to pronounce that kind of forgiveness so that as they're going about and preaching the gospel, as people receive it, as they believe in it, they can say with authority, friend, your sins have been forgiven. 
Like it's my joy when someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I now believe. I didn't believe before, but I believe in the resurrection. Now I believe that Jesus died for my sins. One of the greatest joys of my life is to look at that brother or sister in Christ and say, your sins are forgiven. That's what they have the authority to do. And in the same way, in these sobering conversations, when, when, when friends have come to me and said, I, I don't yet believe, what does that mean for me? With all sobriety and soberness that it takes to go, then you are still dead in your sins. As much as I hate to say it, you are still in the death of your sin. Don't stay there. That's what he is giving the disciples the authority to do. Darrell Bach is helpful here. He says, in sum, the way of life is being preached, evidenced by the Spirit and affirmed in the words about forgiveness and judgment, depending on how people respond to their message. Friends, Jesus, the disciples have just witnessed the death of death as Christ has rose in victorious life. And what's more is he extends that invitation for us to believe. If we would forsake our sin and cling to Christ, we too can raise in victorious life. This is the good news of the gospel. And Jesus' disciples are transformed and sent along the way. So as we close, we've seen that the resurrection of Jesus is historical. Friends, it either happened or it didn't. There really isn't another way to view the resurrection when we, when we read the Gospels, it is not primarily concerned about giving you suggestions for how to live or what to do. It's making a claim about what Christ has done. And John 20 shows us that the historical evidence is compelling. And I find it so compelling that it shifts the burden of proof on any who would deny the historicity of the resurrection. So here's how you apply that. If you've come to believe in the historicity of the resurrection, if you've yet to come to believe in that, Jesus says, investigate me. Don't remain static. Investigate the histor historical claims of Christ. There are no short of volumes written that you can look at. Look at the evidence and challenge your assumptions and come to a place of belief. Do you know John, who is the quintessential evangelist, closes this chapter with another call for us to believe, right? He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. We've also seen that the gospel, that the resurrection is transformational. Though it's a matter of history, this isn't irrelevant static news. It's the dynamic turning point of history that comes with the power to transform every meaningful category in your life from death to life. Whatever you find meaningful in your life, the resurrection has the power to change it. So if you've come to a place of belief in the resurrection, what areas of your life need to experience that life-changing power of the resurrection? You need to identify it. You need to begin praying about it. You need to ask Jesus, Jesus, will you transform this area of my life? And I would encourage you, take another step. Share it with people. Share it with your pastor. Share it with someone that you're close with and say, this is an area this year that I wanna see transformation. And finally, we've seen the resurrection is missional. This is news meant to be shared because it's news that everyone needs to hear. If you would say, Clint, I am a disciple of Jesus, 
then by that very proclamation, you have been sent into the world. Every one of you. Your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, none of them are in your life by accident. Every single one of them have been thoughtfully and carefully placed in your life by the sovereign hand of God. So you, compassionately, thoughtfully, not as a jerk, but deliberately share with them the hope you have in Christ. Seven Mile, may God give us all faith to believe and trust in Jesus Christ who lived for us, who died for us, and was raised for us so that we would have a life of significance, meaning, and purpose. Let's pray.